Good. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Do you want to come and grab your seats? If you've got a Bible, could you please turn to 1 Kings chapter 17? We will get there. If you haven't met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. Very warm welcome to you. Um, just a quick <clears throat> thing about uh, Man versus Fire, which Jeremy spoke about. I've booked in. I'm ready to roll with that. If you haven't booked in, please do so soon so we can make the arrangements for catering. So we need to know how many people there are. So please, guys, book in. Ladies, please remind your men if you have access to them. Life group leaders, poke your life group, just so we got a feel of how we can cater for this event. All right. Um, let's get, get into this. You've got 1 Kings 17. We're going to get there. Um, before we do that, I just want to talk about the well-being journey, which we started in our life groups just this week gone. Um, you had to read the introduction of the book and watch the video. In my life group, we had 10 people in the room and three people on Zoom um, doing that. It was brilliant. So we had a bit of a hybrid meeting. There was a real excitement and real eagerness to get going. Um, tomorrow morning, Monday, we will start the journey proper with our daily reading. So week one, day one starts tomorrow. If you're not connected to one of our life groups, please do so. You need one of the books. They're here. Come and grab one. That's our gift to you. We've got a, a handful left uh, to make sure you've got that. So tomorrow morning, we start proper. And then in this week's life group, we watch the next video, which is the well-being mindset which we'll be getting into that. So get involved, get ready for that. It's, um, it's going to be a good time for us, learning, growing, processing everything that's happened um, and um, getting on and assessing our well-being. There's a real excitement. I'm in prayer for it. Looking forward to that. Also alongside that, I just want to recommend another book I did last week. I'll recommend one this week. This one is called If Only. This is written by a lady named Jenny Pollock who is uh, based down in London, the church down in London. She is an author. She's a blogger. She's a writer. And she wrote this book that I read in lockdown. And it says, Finding Joyful Contentment in the Face of Lack and Longing. And the title, If Only, talks to, if we reflect on a life, if you ever ask the question, if only, if only I'd done that, not that, if only this had worked out that way and not that way, and felt a sense of kind of loss in that, and that prompts you to ask questions. And she's written this book in response to that. It says, life doesn't always go the way we hoped it would. And in the face of all the things that make us wish, if only this were different, many of us also find ourselves quietly asking, is God good? Is he enough? And is he worth it? Is God good? Is he enough? And is he worth it? And she probes these questions. She's asked it herself. She's been through some difficulties in her own life. And I think it's a really good uh, book for us to read. I read it, found it very helpful. I've got three copies here. If you want a copy, come and grab it. Um, they're free um, from us to you. And if they're all gone, come and ask me and I'll order you one. So please, that's um, good. And it will help you as part of we process with the well-being course. All right. Are you into... One Kings. Okay, well with my soul. Second part of the series. Look at that. If anyone else wants one, they, they're all gone now. Come and ask me. I'll get them ordered, delivered to your door. Um, we started a new last sermon series last week, looking at the life of Elijah, which is going to run alongside what we're doing in our life groups, looking at well-being. And we're looking at the life of Elijah, who is a significant Old Testament character in our Bibles, and we're looking at what we can learn from him, his life. So let's just recap a little bit of the story so far. So last week, I did this more in depth last week, so if you missed last week's sermon, go and have a little listen to that, and that'll help catch you up. But we've got beginning of the book of 1 Kings, which is what we're studying in our Bible. If you go back to the beginning of that, it begins with the reign of King Solomon. Solomon was the son of David, David being the most significant character in the Old Testament, second only to Jesus in the whole Bible in terms of how much he's mentioned. He's the guy who slewed 
Goliath, defeated God's enemies, established Jerusalem as the capital, the temple, all those things. He has a son, Solomon. Solomon is known for his wisdom. Because when God came to him and said, Solomon, you can have anything, what do you want? He said, I want wisdom to lead your people, Lord. And God blessed him with wisdom. And out of that wisdom then came great prosperity and wealth because he was a smart guy. Nations came to him to seek of his wisdom and he was an incredibly learned man. But unfortunately, he made some errors. He married foreign women. And God had particularly said, don't do that because the reason is they will turn your heart away from me. And sure as sure, that's what happened with Solomon. He married many foreign women, 700 it says. And he ended up worshipping idols and forsaking the God of Israel, the one who had looked after him, the God of his father, David, and who had blessed them. Solomon then dies. He has a son called Rehoboam. Rehoboam is evil and cruel and harsh. And because he's reigning the kingdom, there is a rebellion. A man named Jeroboam, who sounds just like Rehoboam to confuse you, he rises up in rebellion and the kingdom splits. The people of God split in half. And you have in the north, you have Israel. And in the south, you have the other kingdom called Judah. And in the south, Judah had the temple, it had Jerusalem, it had the line of David, of all the kings that God had promised to David, there'll always be someone sitting on my th- from your line sitting on the throne. And so the, the, the reign of Judah is a series of kings, some good, some bad, some all right, that reign in Judah. But in Israel, in the north, they don't have Jerusalem, they don't have the temple, the center of worship, so they set up counterfeit worship. Jeroboam is an evil king, he sets up counterfeit worship against the God of Israel. And what you have is a series of kings, and the one thing they have in common is they are all bad really bad, really evil, and they go one after the other, and there's usurping, and one line of kings wipes out another line of kings, and it's pretty horrible. And then we get to where we were last week, where we get a man named Ahab. That's a key name, remember that. Ahab, who's king of Israel, and he's not just bad, he's the worst in the line so far. That's what the Bible said. It says he is more evil than everyone who'd come before him. And not only is he bad, he marries a woman named Jezebel, who was an outsider. We see that theme coming up again. And she is bad, and she brings in the worship of the god of Baal into Israel. So they are worshiping false gods. Baal was a storm god, a god of fertility, a god of the rain, and in his worship was involved ritual prostitution and child sacrifice, and it was horrific, and that came into the people of God. And they started worshiping God. Uh, sorry, worshiping Baal, and Ahab built a temple. Bad, bad, bad. And then Elijah turns up on the scene, beginning 1 Kings chapter 17, where we find ourselves now. And he comes in, and he just appears out of nowhere as a prophet of God, or the God of Israel, the true God. And he speaks straight to the king, and he says, what did he say? He says, there's going to be no rain in Israel, but by my word. So God comes in and confronts Baal, the so-called storm god, and says, you're the god of the rain? Well, make it rain. And it doesn't rain. There's a drought, because the god of Israel says, no drought. And what we find is that Elijah stood before the king, announced that, and then what did God do? God took him into obscurity. He took him to the brook on the other side of the Jordan. He left Israel. He was a symbolic of the presence of God leaving Israel, and he went across the Jordan, and God said, I'm going to provide for you there in this tiny little brook, out the way, nowhere, and the ravens are going to feed you, and you can drink from the water in the brook, and that's what's going to happen. And that's where we left it last week. So have you got your Bible? We're going to get into 1 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 7. Big idea for the morning is for it to be well with my soul, we need to be refined by God's grace. 
For it to be well with my soul, we need to be refined by God's grace. And we're going to look at two um, tests of faith that Elijah goes through. And through this, the Lord shapes him and refines him. And the image of refining is a common image amongst the Old Testament prophets in our Bible. You'll find it come up again and again as you read the prophets uh, in the Old Testament. And as I understand it, very um, kind of layman's term, when you wanted to refine a metal, you heated it up. So it was super hot. The metal then kind of melted down, became a liquid because it was so hot. The impurities in the metal would then rise to the surface and could be scooped off. And then when the metal cooled down, it was purer than when it started. So it had been refined. This is a process that could be done many, many times and thus refined the metal more and more. And we're going to see this refining. And we know this is about refining because the place where Elijah ends up, actually the word, the name of the place means a place of refining a place of smelting, and we will get to that. So, 1 Kings chapter uh, 17, verse 7. We're going to look at two things today, trusting in God's purposes and trusting in God's direction. Direction first, purposes second. So, it says in verse 7, And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Okay, Elijah is in the brook Kerith where he is being provided by the stream from the brook so he can drink during the drought and the ravens are coming to bring him food. But the, the brook dries up. Why does the brook dry up? Because there's a drought. So he, he, Elijah is suffering the consequences of his own prophecy when he says to Ahab, guess what, there's going to be no rain in the land, and the brook now dries up. So the effect of the drought that was in Israel has now reached him outside Israel. And this has made him uncomfortable. He's now like, oh, I've got nothing to drink. That's bad in a season of drought. We need water. And so God has made his situation uncomfortable, so it's time to move. Sometimes God does that with us. He wants to move you from one place to another. He makes your current situation uncomfortable to get your attention. And so Elijah's in that place. There's no water to drink now. That's bad. I've got a few days and I'm dead. That's how long we can survive without water. Two or three days and you're gone. So then the Lord speaks into this situation and he gives fresh guidance. He says, you were here. He says, I want you to move. And you want to go to a place called Zarephath, which means a place of refining, a place of smelting. And this is situated outside Israel. So he's still going to be outside Israel uh, in the region of Sidon. Why is that relevant? What do we remember from last week about Sidon? Who's from Sidon? Jezebel, the bad queen. What is in Sidon? Well, that's the epicenter of the worship of Baal. Her dad, the king, is a former priest of Baal. He runs that place. So Baal worship is like, whoa. Not Israel. There's a kind of a, a bit of a duality. Like there's a bit of Baal worship. Some of them might remember the Lord. That's all going on. When you go to Sidon, there's only one name on everyone's lips. Baal is the God. He is the one who rules here. And so God is saying to Elijah, guess what? You're going right into the heart of enemy territory. Remember Star Wars? And they get on Millennium Falcon, where do they end up? In the Death Star. That's the worst place to be. Vader's there. Moff Tarkin's there. There are thousands of stormtroopers. It's like you're going right into the heart of the enemy. And so he goes into enemy territories. And Elijah represents the presence of the Lord. And he's not singing back to Israel, God's people. He's sending him to foreigners, to pagans, to Gentiles, those outside, the people of God. And there's no place that is too far from God. There are no people too far from God. And God is sending Elijah to Zarephath. And 
Elijah, being the man he is, he responds straight away to the word of the Lord. And he says, I'm going to find someone there to look after you, and it will be a widow. And so there's a great reversal here. Who's the last person Elijah spoke to? The king of Israel, the mightiest, the most powerful, the top of the pecking order. And he now says, you're going to a foreign land where they're pagans, they're not even Jews, they're Gentiles, and you're going to find the widow who is at the bottom of the social pecking order, the bottom of of the run in terms of resources and influence and power. And that's the person I'm taking you to. Verse 10, it says, So he arose and went to Zarephath. Instant response from Elijah. We saw that in the last passage. He's great. When God speaks, he responds. And he came to the gate of the city. Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she were going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm getting a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. So, Elijah has gone and found this widow that the Lord spoke about. And we find this widow at the end of herself the end of her physical resources. She's only got a tiny bit of food left. Um, she's got a son, we find out, and this is it. Once they eat it, that's it. There's nothing left. There's no social welfare system. There's no one to care for them. They're going to starve to death as a consequence of the drought and the famine that has come um, on the land. And so Elijah is now in a really humbling position where he has gone from Speaking to the king of Israel, he's then been removed to obscurity. He's now been moved to a foreign land, finding the lowest person there. And he's he's in a position where he's got nothing, and he's got to ask her for food. And he's been fed by ravens, which has been great, but they're unclean animals under the Jewish law. And he's now gone to an unclean woman who's a foreigner outside of Israel, and he's got to beg for food from her. She worships a false god, and she has next to nothing, and he's asking her for help, asking her for food. He doesn't have anything. And often we find that the Lord provides for us in places that we might reject or avoid. We couldn't go there. God couldn't be working there. And Elijah finds himself thrust into this situation. He's now talking to a woman with next to nothing, and he finds himself asking her for help. And she fully expects to starve to death with her son. But she makes this interesting comment in verse 12 there. because, Because Baal has been overthrown, in effect, because there's been no rain... In the ancient Near East, what would the, the thinking would be was that Baal was dead or had gone to the underworld or something. He wasn't, in his, he wasn't what, doing what he should be doing. So effectively, like Baal's dead. There's no, there's no rain. There's no, there's no crops. That's his territory, his sphere. He's not doing it. So he's been overthrown, defeated. But what does she say? She says, as the Lord your God lives. She knows who Elijah is. He's a Jew. He worships the God of Israel. And if he recognizes that that God is a God who lives, that is a God who hasn't died, unlike Baal. It is a moment of faith on her part. Let's read what happens next. It says, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. That's a key line there. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. 
So Elijah promises that her supplies will not run out until the drought ends. The Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Baal may be dead. The Lord of Israel is still alive. He provides in a way that Baal can't. And interestingly, she agrees before she sees the miracle. She has faith in the God of Israel before the provision arrives. That is an incredible testimony. I've got nothing left. I've got this one tiny meal that me and my boy are going to have, and then we're going to die. And Elijah says, give it to me, and then you'll be fine. And she does. She gives it to him. And what happens? The Lord provides. The Lord gives. The, the, the oil doesn't run out. The flour doesn't run out. Her whole house says they, they can eat. They can survive. They can be okay in the situation. And she recognizes that the God of Israel is the one true God. God has sent Elijah, sent his prophet, sent his presence into a pagan Gentile territory. And what has happened is he has provided. And a woman there has turned to faith. He's turned to faith. And we have lessons here for Elijah. The Lord has been rejected in Israel amongst his people. And they are now worshipping Baal, a false god. And as a result, they're suffering because of their sin. There's no water. uh, There's no rain. They can't have crops. People will be starving. Animals will be dying. It will be terrible. But the Lord is still alive and he sends his prophet to the Gentiles to reveal his mercy and grace there. If you read in the Gospels, Jesus actually references his story in Luke chapter 4. After he's done that bit, you know, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to preach good news. And then he said, that's been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a big kind of beginning of his ministry moment. He then says to the people there, there were widows in Israel, just like this widow. He says, but actually God sent him God sent Elijah to this widow in Zarephath because she had faith he could respond. And they were really stroppy about that. How dare he mention foreigners, pagans, outsiders. But actually God goes where there's faith and people are willing to humble himself. And he didn't find that in Israel. He found that outside. And so Elijah has to humble himself to follow the word of the Lord, to go where he wouldn't expect it. And it turns out that God is working in that place as well. And this lady turns from her sin and puts her faith and trust in him. So we have to trust in God's direction, just like Elijah did. Next section, trusting in God's purposes. So it's going well. They're being fed. Things are happening. Isn't this brilliant? God is the God who is ruling. Baal is nothing. And then it says this. After this, the son of the woman, remember him? The mistress of the house, he became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. So a second problem arises now. Her son becomes so sick, he stops breathing, he dies. And she fears that it's the the result of her sin that has caused this. She kind of reminded of who she is, a sinner before a holy God, and she, she questions, Elijah, if you come here to punish me, you, as God, God of Israel brought you to here, to where I am, to punish me for my sin. She questions, maybe if Elijah hadn't come, her son would still be alive. Unfortunately, she conveniently forgets that if Elijah hadn't come, they'd have starved to death, so it's actually the same result. But in grief, in pain, it would be understandable that her um, her thinking was warped in that. If it's something that as a parent would be a horrific thing to happen for your child to die. And Elijah, in response, he even questions. He finds himself questioning uh, what's going on um, as well. And this boy has been spared hunger. 
but now he's going to die from disease. And the question is, has God lost the ability to sustain life in this pagan foreign land? Can God actually move in this situation? And there's more refining coming for Elijah. How is he going to react when things go wrong? How is he going to deal with God in this situation? Is he going to reject God? Often that happens. When things go wrong and bad, the first thing we want to do is reject God, blame God. Or is he going to cry out to God in mercy? This is what happens. And it says, he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him to the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come um, into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and he delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So, the Lord is using Elijah to show his watchfulness and care to those outside his elect people, God doesn't just care for his covenant people. They do, and he actually cares for those outside. We see this in the ministry of Jesus many times. People got upset when he went to the Gentiles and performed miracles there. And Elijah, in the response to an impossible situation, was to cry out to God. He doesn't reject God. He calls upon him to show grace and mercy. And he recognizes the only one who can do it is the Lord. He can't raise a child from the dead. Only God can do that. And it's interesting to note, just as one of those trivia facts, up to this point, no one in the Bible had been raised from the dead. When you kind of look at the life of Jesus and you see him doing it a few times and then himself rising from the dead, it's almost like, oh yeah, we had a bit of acts. There's people rising from the dead. It almost comes, yeah, that's a bit blasé. Up to this point, it never happened. So when God, uh, Elijah is asking God to do something, no one's ever done this. There's no precedent. He is crying out to God for not just the impossible and raising the life. It's, no one's ever done this before. It's not like, oh, yes, yeah, we know another story about someone who did this. I'll try it. He is crying out in faith saying, God, only you can move in this situation. Only you can do this. And he's crying out to the God of Israel, not to Baal. Not to anyone else, but only to the one who can move in power. And he knows that's the Lord God of Israel who can do that. And he does it. And what happens? The child rises from the dead. He takes him upstairs to his room. He lies down with him, identifying with him in his death, and then cries out to God. And he doesn't just do it once. He says he does it three times. There's a repetition in what he's doing. He keeps crying out. This is important. He keeps going after it. He doesn't give up after the first one. He keeps pushing and calling on God. And what we find is when the child rises from the dead, there's a great truth that Baal may be dead, but the Lord, the God of Israel, is most definitely not. He is alive, he is ruling and reigning, and he raises his child from life. He comes back downstairs, he gives him back to his mother. What a joyous occasion that must have been for them both, um, and a wonderful recognition of what God can do. And in this situation... We find um, what the author of the the book is trying to do. He's trying to to make a point to his readers. And not only is God alive uh, in this situation and God can move and to remind people of that, but if we step back a bit, we find that actually the boy represents 
Israel. The boy is dead, just like Israel. In his sin, he's, he's, just, he's gone. There's nothing that he can then do for him. He needs a resurrection, just like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has rejected God, has gone after Baal. They've got a wicked king on the throne with his wicked queen, and they are doing everything they can to dismantle the worship of God. They are dead in their sin. They require help, but what they require is a resurrection. They are, they are gone in that sense. And so they require a resurrection to come. And by Israel, uh, Elijah lying down with the boy, he's identifying in that death. He's saying, actually, yes, Israel has died. He's an Israelite. He's identifying that. But then through it, he recognizes that God can revive a nation. God can raise a boy to life, but he can also turn a whole nation around. And God is preparing him for what comes next. Because when we get to 1 Kings 18, next chapter, we're going to cover that over a couple of weeks. That is the biggest kind of, if you know the story of Elijah, that's the, that's the landmark moment. That's the one that would make a really epic movie, um, that sort of scene that's coming. So if you want to read ahead to 1 Kings 18, it gets pretty impressive in that bit. But God is preparing him for what's going to come. He's, getting, he's gone through refining to prove who he is, and he's getting Elijah ready for what comes next, preparing him for the future. And when God takes us through difficult situations where we have to trust his direction, where we have to trust his purposes, he's refining us. He is preparing us for what comes next in the future. Whatever God's got planned for you hereafter, what you're going through at the moment is merely preparation for that. God uses us, God uses the situation to grow us, to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. But there's also something else going on here, and that is that Jesus is a better Elijah. Because whenever we study characters in the Old Testament, we can look at their lives, we can learn from them, which is great. But we've got to be careful that if all we do is just take things away from their life, that they did that, I should do this. We can get very quickly into legalism. We can get very quickly, if I work harder, do more, I will be better for God. But actually, it's not like that. When we look at characters in the Bible, we must always end with Jesus. We must always look to Jesus. And Jesus is a better Elijah because Jesus is the one who came into the world that was opposed to him. He came into a place of false gods and false leaders and people who hated him and rejected him. Jesus is the one who spoke the word of God and he fulfilled the word of God. In fact, he was the word of God, it says in John chapter 1. He was the prophet of God, the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. He came not only to the people of Israel, but also to those around about. He came and brought God's love to everyone, the Gentiles and the Samaritans, as well as God's covenant people. He provided miraculously in the feeding of the 5,000, not just to one woman, but to hundreds, thousands of people. He raised the dead many times, and then he topped it by raising himself from the dead. He humbled himself before his Father in heaven and was obedient to him in every way. He identified with those who were dying and dead in their sins by himself dying and going through great punishment and suffering. He was dead for three days, but then he rose victorious and offered life to everyone who would accept it. And he even comes now by his Spirit to raise the spiritually dead. The offer is here. Jesus is a better Elijah. So how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to put this into some sort of something we can do now, something we can take away? So here's a couple of suggestions for you as I end. If you're not a believer here, 
If you are not a follower of Jesus and you don't know him and you've come as a guest and you're just looking in, I want to encourage you to fully explore who Jesus is and what he said. You can go on an Alpha course, we run that, where we can talk to you about that. You can become a Christian. You can turn away from living your own life your way, worshipping whatever gods you worship, whether it be money or job or power or sex or whatever, and you can worship the one true God, the God of Israel revealed to us in Jesus Christ. You can put your faith and trust in him and saying, he took the punishment I deserve for the things I've done. He died in my place for my sin and rose victorious and now offers life to us. If that's you, I'd love to chat with you at the end of the meeting, talk about what that means for you. If you're a believer here, what does it mean for you? Well, I've got some questions to ask you and then some suggestions to make. First one is, are you trusting God for the direction of your life? Are you trusting God for the direction of your life? I don't know what... The past 18 months, the pandemic has thrown up in terms of your family situation, your work situation. I don't know if you've had if-only thoughts, if only this had happened and this had happened or that hadn't happened. You ever sit there and ask, your, ask the question, how did I end up here? I want to encourage you that God works in all circumstances. Even when the brook dries up and you find yourself being moved to a place that I didn't want to be in, and I didn't want to go there with people I don't like or don't look like me and don't talk like me. God is working in these situations. Are you trusting God for his purposes in your life? We can often live for false purposes, whether it's for the home and the family and for the job and for wealth and possessions and toys and trinkets and families and holidays. Are you living for God's purposes? God's purpose is to refine you and shape you and ultimately make you more like Jesus. He does this by taking us to places that we do not expect, putting in situations that we wouldn't conceive of ourselves. And when the heat gets turned up and it gets hot and uncomfortable, the question is, what are you going to do? Who are you going to cry out to? Are you going to cry out to God in anger and shake your fist at him? Are you going to blame him? Or are you going to humble yourself and cry out to God in mercy, grace, in humility, and say, God, I need you in these situations. Maybe some suggestions for you. Are you reading your Bible and praying daily? That's the great place to find out what God wants you to do with your life, give direction. We bang on about it all the time in this church. Reading your Bible and praying daily is a habit for all believers, all followers of Jesus. So we learn from it. It's God's word. It's useful for life and godliness. It teaches about him. It teaches about ourselves. It teaches about life. It gives us perspective on things. Crying out to God in prayer following the Lord's Prayer as a, as a kind of a guide for that. That is what we're to do. What about life group this week? Are you going to turn up and get stuck into the well-being journey? I'm sure God is going to raise lots of things in our lives, challenge us, provoke us, help us see things differently, help shape us. If you are know that you're in a position where you're, this isn't where I want to be, this isn't what I do, or if you ask for help from someone, if you found someone in your life group, a friend, someone older and wiser maybe, you can just come alongside and say, this is where I am, I need help with this, I need prayer for this, I need you to stand with me as I go through this and process what I'm going for. Are you doing some of those things? Let me finish with prayer. Do you want to stand? Can the band come back up? And we will, we will just land this where we always land it, which is at the feet of Jesus. And so I'm just going to pray for you, and I don't know what God has been doing in your life, even as I've been speaking. I know the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of speaking 
to people, provoking them, convicting them, putting fingers on situations in lives and hearts. And the question for you now is how are you going to respond? Elijah was put in those situations. The question for him each time is, well, how did he respond? He chose obedience. He chose humility. He chose to cry out to God. He chose faith. And I'm submitting to you today that actually that's probably the best choice for all of us. So maybe when you close your eyes, open your hands. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us do that so that ultimately we might become more and more like Jesus and serve him better in the world that we live in. So Lord God, we thank you for the example of Elijah. We thank you that he was a man of God who served you, who was obedient to you, who was humble before you. He was a man just like us, and we thank you for that. Lord God, but we thank you that you were a better Elijah, and you did the things you did. You made a way that we can come in relationship with God. We can be forgiven for our sins. We can walk free. We can know you for ourselves. We can be full of your spirit. And we ask today, God, you come fill us with your spirit, and you lead us into life with you, God. We want to say as your people, we trust you. We trust your direction. Maybe you want to say that out loud if you're in a situation where it looks long. Say, you trust the Lord. Say, God, I trust you. I trust your purposes for my life, even when they look totally left field. God, I love you. I trust you. I put my life in your hands. If you've got a particular situation, maybe you just want to say, God, I give you this. Work, home, family, life, health, financial, relational situation. And say, God, I give that to you and I trust you in it. And I'm going to stay humble. And I'm going to keep following you. And I'm going to keep reading my Bible and praying. I'm going to keep being part of church community. I'm going to keep loving you. And I'm going to keep following you. Even when I don't know what the end looks like. And God, even in the face of the impossible, in the face of the, I don't know where to go, Lord, I'm going to look to you and trust you. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.